This episode is sponsored by Modern Patchwork Magazine, a publication from F&W Media. Known for its fresh and contemporary quilt patterns, in-depth designer profiles, and inspirational articles. Whether you're just beginning to quilt and love the modern look or are a seasoned quilter looking for contemporary patchwork projects of every skill level, Modern Patchwork is the magazine for you. And now it's available six times a year and as a subscription. Visit quiltingdaily.com slash mpsubscribe for more information. And now here's the show. to episode 86 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about product development with my guest, Annie Unrein, a creative lifetime quilter. Annie Unrein of Patterns by Annie and byannie.com has been designing patterns and teaching since 2000. With a focus on practical and useful projects, Annie's patterns appeal to a sewist of all ages and levels. Annie is the creator of By Annie's Soft and Stable, an innovative product she designed to add body, stability, and a professional finish to purses, bags, home deck items, and more. A popular instructor, Annie teaches online and also travels worldwide to teach. She loves sharing techniques for making sewing bags and purses easier while yielding professional results. Annie is based in St. George, Utah, where she and her energetic team operate the popular website byannie.com. They are your source for patterns, soft and stable, handbag zippers in over 48 colors, purse hardware, mesh, vinyl, and more. Annie Unrein, welcome. Thank you so much, Abby. It's so exciting to be here with you. Oh, good. I'm so happy to have you. So um, I am fascinated by your story. You describe yourself as a quilter, a pattern designer, a teacher, and a product developer, which is a lot of different things. And I wondered if you could start by just giving us a little bit of a rundown of what your business looks like, kind of a snapshot right now. I would love to do that. I I actually find that I have to wear a lot of hats and all of those fit. And the, the challenge sometimes is, is focusing on one and, and you know, keeping the, all the balls in the air. I'm lucky because about two years ago, my son and his wife came to work with me, and my goal at that time was to turn all the day-to-day operations over to them so that I could really focus on pattern writing and creating videos for training and education purposes. And I'm happy to say that for about the past two months, I've been to the office only maybe four or five days. So I've my role in the business has kind of switched to to the point that I am concentrating more on patterns, product development, teaching, and things like that. But the business, fortunately, because of everybody that's there and knows what they're doing, has kind of continued to go. We've got over a thousand products. We have over 150 patterns. Um, we've got, as you said, soft and stable zippers in 48 colors. We recently came out with our own line of mesh in seven fun colors, and we love using that in purses and bags um, because it doesn't add bulk in the seams. We've got hardware. Our our goal is kind of to be a one-stop shop so that other than fabric, um, when a customer buys one of our patterns, they're able to get everything they need in one place. They don't have to run all over the place. And we not only serve retail customers, but we also have a really strong wholesale and distributor arm of our business as well. So um, we work really closely with all the major distributors in the U.S., Canada, um, Europe, and stores usually will buy directly from distributors, but we also really try to support stores who who sell our projects because we really want to keep the local quilt shops in business and and we do our best to, you know, make life easy for them too because when they buy one of our patterns, they don't want to have to try to run all over the place trying to find the things that their customers are going to need when they come in the store. Wow, that's great. And it's so inspiring to hear how you, you know, you've grown this business um, and we're going to go kind of take a step back in a minute to its inception and what it looked like in the very beginning to what it is now, which is truly impressive. Um, so I think that's really inspiring for people to hear about. So you started selling patterns, quilt patterns online in 2001. And I think that was 
really impressive to me because that's so early, you know, and I feel like that was a time when to set up an, a website, you had to really know HTML, you had to um, just to do e-commerce, exactly. um, you know, you had to really understand how to code an e-commerce site. There was no Etsy, there was no social media, but nobody knew what a blog was. I mean, that was really an early time. So you must have had at that point like a dual interest in both writing the quilting patterns and in building a website in order to make that happen. So I'm wondering if you could tell us how you learned both of those things back then. I would love to talk about that. I um, actually need to go a little bit further back to give a little more background on that. I, um, My husband and I owned an inn in Alaska. And as part of running an inn, my main my main job was attracting customers and taking reservations and keeping track of all of that. And I had been an uh, an accounting major in college, and so I had a a good background in the financial part of it, but the marketing part was really new to me and was turned out to be something that I really, really enjoyed. But um, I loved computers. I couldn't wait to, to buy my first computer in like 1984, the year my son was born. And I bought an Atari computer that didn't even have a floppy disk drive on it. It didn't have an operating system that you could use. So I bought a program that was a knockoff of Lotus 123, a, a spreadsheet program. And I programmed it to keep reservations and to send letters to people so that it would figure out when they were coming. And I really kind of learned how to hack and make a system work for me. So I had a great interest in doing that um, and and took classes whenever I could. When we lived in Alaska, it was really difficult. It was kind of like grab a book and try and figure it out. Because again, this was the days before the internet. You couldn't go online and watch a video tutorial to learn how to do anything. So I kind of started there. We would, um, we actually went to California uh, two or three years and found a graphic designer. It was kind of a, a way, we were only open in the summer. So it was a way to um, get a little vacation and work on business at the same time. So we'd go to California, we found a graphic designer and I would sit with him while he worked on our brochures and our marketing materials. And so I kind of learned just by watching him do things. And I quickly realized that paying a graphic designer um, to, you know, move things over and rearrange things didn't make sense if it was something I could learn to do myself. So after several years, we started spending our winters actually where I am now in St. George, Utah. And I was really fortunate because there was a college here where I could take classes in the winter. So I took two or three classes every year while I was here. And one of them was on website design. And again, this was actually after we had sold the inn and I just was looking for something to do for fun. And I learned how to do HTML code, just like you said. And I set up my first um, website with all of three patterns. And it was such a thrill to get a $10 order, you know, once a week when somebody found my patterns online. But um, kind of basically by just learning those steps, I was able to get a website up and running. I, I was starting my business basically as a way to pay for my quilting habit. I wasn't ever looking at it turning into what it was today. Uh, we had sold our inn in Alaska. My kids were grown. I needed something to keep me entertained and keep me busy. And 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 basically, I wanted to be able to buy fabric. So so that's kind of where it started, and and things kind of took off from there. And I think that's so many people's story. I mean, I think almost everybody, not everybody, but many people who got into um, quilting as a business or even sewing in general as a business sort of start because they just want to be able to sell a few things to get earn a little bit of spending money and buy more of, you know, of the fabric or of the supplies that they need. Um, and, and to get a $10 pattern order once a week is exciting. I mean, I think that that, <laughs> that resonates with many, many people. It certainly was my story and I think is many people's story, but sort of how it evolves and grows and what you've done with it, I think is especially interesting. So um, before we get there, I want to go back a little further because I think hearing that you had an inn in Alaska is a very unusual thing, at least for me. I live in Boston. <laughs> I've never been to Alaska. I certainly didn't own an inn in Alaska before becoming uh, working in the quilting industry. So where did you grow up? Did you grow up there? 
No, actually, I grew up in Texas. I was born in a little town called Hereford, Texas. My dad was a Lutheran minister, and um, my mom started out as a school teacher, although she had five daughters, bam, 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 within like six years. So she was a stay-at-home mom all the time that I grew up. But we started out in a little town called Hereford. We lived for a while in Kingsville, which is the headquarter of the King's Ranch. But all of us had real problems with allergies there. So we ended up moving to the panhandle of Texas, Lubbock. And I lived there until I was in junior high school when we moved to Colorado, the prairie grasslands of northeastern Colorado. And I went to high school there, junior college, and met my husband in high school. We were high school sweethearts. We got married after just a couple years in junior college and moved to Greeley and went to the University of Northern Colorado, where we both graduated. And when we graduated, I had gotten a degree in accounting and had gotten my CPA certificate. And my husband had majored in in, um, teaching. So we figured it would be much easier for me to get a job than him. So we would apply for a job for him first, and then I'd get a job, you know, doing whatever. And he, my my mother-in-law always said that he was born 100 years too late. He should have been a pioneer because he had a real pioneer spirit. And he wanted to farm. He really wanted to live you know, out in the rural area and bless his heart. He wanted to go either to Alaska or West Virginia, which are two really (laughs) different places. And I basically said, you know, I don't care where we go. I can live anywhere. Um, you know, cause I loved doing things in the house. It didn't really matter, you know, what the weather was like at that point in my life. I've since learned that weather really does make a difference. And I, I'm much happier somewhere where the sun shines a lot than places where the skies are gray. But at the time I said, well, I, you know, I'm open. Like, I can go anywhere. So we sent out job applications. He got offered a job in Huna, Alaska, which is a little Indian village west of Juneau, about 50 miles. It's about 90% Clinkett Indian. And it was a wonderful experience. I got a job as assistant bookkeeper at the school district. It was probably my favorite job of of the jobs I ever held because I loved being involved with the teachers, the students, and there was always something fun going on there. He was just replacing another teacher who was on leave for a year. So the next year we moved to Ketchikan, which is in Southeast Alaska as well. And he taught there and I got a job there as a CPA and eventually came became business manager for the school district that had all the logging camp schools. And um, one day in the spring, my husband was teaching at an alternative high school where kids didn't have to come to school um, unless they wanted to. But if they wanted free lunch, they had to be there by 10 o'clock in the morning. And it was a beautiful spring day. And there were six teachers sitting there and not a student in in the classroom. And he said, I just can't keep doing this. I don't feel like I'm, you know, earning my pay and I'm gonna, I'm not going to do this. So we ended up buying a lot. He built a house, which we sold the day we left there. And um, at the time, Alaska had very little land in private ownership. And again, my husband really wanted to farm. So we were actually looking at moving to British Columbia and buying a farm there. And the state put land up in Alaska for lottery sale. And among the parcels that they put up for sale were some uh, large acreages of homesteads. And they were just exactly what my husband wanted. And so we put our name in the hat and ended up winning the right to buy a 160-acre homestead in uh, Gustavus, Alaska, which is kind of the headquarters of, or the gateway to Glacier Bay National Park. So that's what's, what took us there. We had to um, build bridges, clear clear land, you know, build roads to even get into the property. I got pregnant a month after we moved there, which was totally not in the plans. The day before my daughter was born, I was on the roof hammering shingles. She was born six weeks early. So, you know, it's not like I was really pushing it. But, um, but you know, it was it was a very interesting life. The first three years, we didn't have electricity or running water. And, you know, I did things that I never thought I'd do in, in, in my life. But it really learned me to be independent and self-sufficient and, you know, for us to depend on each other. I, I very much learned the power of positive thinking when, uh, when we did that, when we sent in our applications for the, for the lottery sale. We immediately went on the tack of 
um, when we get the land in Gustavus, we're going to need to do this or when, you know, this happens. And so throughout the whole thing, I had applied for all the parcels. My husband had applied for all the parcels. And on the day they had the drawing, we both win one, one, you know, a parcel, which really drove home to me the power of thinking positively. And, and one of my favorite sayings is, if you think you can, you can. And if you think you can't, you can't. And, and that has really helped me in good stead and in all the things that I've done in life, I think. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think I know from, from my own life, um, doing something that's extremely difficult. Um, I, I was a, a teacher with Teach for America in the Mississippi Delta. Um, and it was a, a very difficult um, two years. It was not super long time, but it was just two years that I was there. And um, But I definitely had a lot of um, uphill challenges in front of me. And I think having gone through that period, um, I became a, a much more self-sufficient person and I know my own strengths and, um, and I know that those lessons carry forward with me to this day. Like I have a thick skin and, um, I'm able to sort of <laughs> keep going, um, when things get hard. So, um, it I, sounds like you, you carried forward some of the, that the lessons that you learned about yourself during that period into business in the future. Absolutely. Such yeah. good lessons to learn. And then what you said about the thick skin, I think, is probably one of the best lessons you can learn. Um, I, you know, I see so many negative comments on things on the Internet, and it's just so easy to get wrapped up in all of that. And I think it's so important to say, you know, this is who I am and this is what I can do. And, and um, I feel good about myself and let's move on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen to that. So, so, so since that time in 2000, so, so in 2001, you were, you were living in um, Utah and had taken these classes and gotten interested in quilting. How did quilting be, sort of arrive on your landscape? Were your, um, were your parents or grandparents quilters? You know, my mom taught us all to sew and, and that was probably more for just, um, you know, in a family on a minister's salary with five girls, if you wanted a dress for prom, you made it yourself. So she taught us to sew. She was always very crafty, but I don't remember my mom ever really making a quilt. My grandmother on my father's side was an amazing quilter, although she lived in Illinois and we lived in Texas and Colorado. So I rarely got to see her and really don't ever remember seeing her do quilting, but I do have a quilt that she made. And my mother on my, on my mother's mother, so my grandmother on my mother's side, um, was a crafty type person, but I never saw her really quilt either. She did more crocheting and things. But when I moved to Alaska, this was in um, the late 70s or mid-70s, which was the time of the bicentennial. And quilting was kind of, you know, coming back into, into the mainstream, you know, of things that people were doing. And I decided I wanted to make a quilt for my two sisters-in-law who were having babies. And I had seen a picture of a log cabin quilt and I decided I wanted to make one of those. And I made um, templates for each of the logs out of um, manila file folders. I cut out each piece, sewed them together. I knew nothing about paper piecing or you know, strip piecing or any of those things. I, I don't think I probably knew anything about quarter inch seams, although I know that I was an early subscriber to Quilter's newsletter, mm -hmm. which I read voraciously. So I probably, you know, learned by picking up books. Georgia Bonesteel, I remember having her book on lap quilting and learning a lot from that. I, you know, I absorbed everything I could. And I remember laying in bed at night under the quilt that my grandmother had made and studying the stitching. Yeah, I mm. learned to hand quilt by looking at the quilts that she had made. I tried machine quilting early on and of course knew nothing about a walking foot or basting a quilt or anything like that. And I had so many puckers that I pulled out the stitches and ended up quilting by hand for a lot of years. When we moved to Alaska, I was really fortunate. It was a very small community. There were only about a hundred people in the whole community, but there were a, most of the people were around our age, you know, mid twenties to mid thirties. And they were, there were a lot of them who were interested in quilting and we would get together once a week and work on projects while the kids played. And, and we kind of taught each other and, and learned from there. When we moved to Utah, I was very fortunate in that there is a very active quilt guild here. 
which as soon as my kids, you know, were out and I wasn't having to be so busy with them and the business was, was sold, I joined the Quilt Guild and that became just a wonderful resource for me in terms of people who were amazing quilters and classes and just the wonderful social network that you develop in something like that. I think I held every office in the Quilt Guild for a lot of years. I, um, I made my schedule based on Quilt Guild activities. And unfortunately, things have grown to the point that I haven't been to a meeting of the Quilt Guild in, in quite a long time. But I do miss that the wonderful group of ladies. I want to take a moment now to hear from our sponsor, Modern Patchwork Magazine. Hi, I'm Vivica Denegri. I'm the editorial director for Quilting Arts Magazine, Modern Patchwork Magazine, and related titles at F&W Media. And tell me some of what's new at F&W, because I hear there's some new and exciting changes taking place. We have a lot going on at F&W right now. There's actually a great big transformation that's in progress. We have a brand new CEO and an entirely new C-suite leadership team, which means that there's been an influx of great talent and a lot of enthusiasm from the top of our company. But I think the most important thing for our readers is that we are really committed to putting together great content in the formats that you love. Modern Patchwork is one of my favorite magazines, and I've written several articles for it. And I'm excited to hear that it's going to be published more often. So tell us a little bit more about the changes that are going to be taking place with that magazine in particular. Well, we can't say enough about how happy we are that you write for us, Abby, because I think you have a really interesting perspective on on the modern group of artists that are out there and designers. I think the exciting part about Modern Patchwork is that we are listening to our readers. Our readers have said that the magazine was too expensive and that it wasn't published more frequently or frequently enough. And we've listened to them. And so we've adjusted the price. We've made it more widely available. It's going to be available on many more newsstands. You'll see it in your local retailers as well as in shops and you'll be able to buy it online and we've adjusted the frequency it's now going to be six times a year instead of four times a year and we've added subscriptions so this is a huge change for this magazine and it's really a testament to the modern quilters that are out there and if people do want to subscribe where should they go to sign up this new transformation is actually happening um, starting in January. Subscriptions can be uh, purchased at quiltingdaily.com slash MP subscribe, or they can call 1-800-282-6003. And now back to my conversation with Annie. And so how do you go then from being an active participant and, and in a leadership role in the organization to saying, I have a unique and original design and I want to create that design and I want to create a pattern for it and start selling that pattern. Cause I think there is a jump there. There, you know, and actually I'm not sure that that's how I got there. I was actually doing scrapbooking. I was a scrapbooking consultant for a long time and my first pattern actually was for an organizer for people who were scrapbookers and so I had, um, I always did monthly workshops with my customers and I needed some way to display all the stickers and scissors and punches and things that everybody wanted to use. And so I'd made this thing that would hang on the door that had all kinds of vinyl pockets and people could put them in. And I knew that if I needed this, somebody else probably was going to need it too. And one of the people that would come to my monthly workshops was sister to the publisher of Memory Makers magazine. And she had seen my hanging organizer and she said, you know, they're getting ready to do an issue on spring cleaning. And I think people would really like to see what you've done here. Would you mind if we put a picture in the magazine? And I said, no, of course not. Go ahead. But I said, tell them I have a pattern for it. You know, here I am thinking entrepreneurially and thinking, I can I can get something out of this free advertising. So she did. She said, what do you want to charge for it? And I said, I don't know, $10. And if you've ever been involved with magazines, which I'm sure you have, Abby, you know that you send something to a magazine and it's many months before that comes out. And by the time it comes out, you've kind of moved on and forgotten about it. Well, I sent, I told her to do that. She put the picture in. And in the meantime, my youngest sister's husband got really sick, had cancer and, and ended up dying. And I, I spent a lot of months in Colorado with her, helping her get things in order. And one day my husband called while I was there and he said, 
I don't know what you've done, but <laughs> you've got all kinds of mail coming in and all these $10 checks. And it's and it dawned on me, oh uh -oh. my goodness, that <laughs> pattern that I haven't written. <laughs> so, so I was headed home shortly thereafter, and I wrote everybody. By that time, you know, everybody had emails, which was good, or you know, some way to write them. And I, you know, explained my circumstances, and I said it's coming. So I got busy right away, and I got that pattern written, and it was kind of a little taste. And and I loved doing it. I think my background as an accountant made it easy to figure out steps of how things needed to go. I've, I've always looked at things really in terms of you've got to do this and then this and then this. So writing the pattern was pretty easy. And so after I got the taste of that, then I decided I really wanted to do a pattern for a quilt. And I was really fortunate because one of the people that I met in the local quilt guild here was Heather Purcell, who many people know as Mother Superior. She and her husband, Bob, started Superior Threads. And she, um, I would go there to buy threads and she'd show me what was new and we'd talk. And, and so I was working on a pattern for a quilt that had some applique on it and she showed me their fusible thread, which, which, you know, was a new product for them and was something that she wanted to, um, you know, get people using. And so I wrote the pattern to use, use that. And, and she said, if you will make a quilt for me to hang in my booth, I'll take it to shows and sell it for you. So that kind of got me again, going a little bit further there and actually worked me into, a. I think probably the most impactful thing that happened in my business, which was demonstrating in the Superior Threads booth at trade shows. Because, I mean, some years I was doing 20 shows, which was exposing me and my patterns to people that I never could have reached any other way. Um, when they came out with Texture Magic, um, I was the one who kind of figured out how to use it. I wrote probably 12 to 20 patterns for using it. Um, we, it, you know, we were like the bells of the ball that year when that came out, it was like the hot product at, 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 um, the shows and, and that then turned me into a business in the eyes of distributors. All the distributors picked up my patterns, which then kind of snowballed. And, and when I decided to come out with soft and stable, they knew me, they knew my stuff and it was just kind of an automatic, yes, we'll take it. And, and off we went. Right. So had I not met Heather and 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 gotten that leg up, um, I doubt that I'd be where I am today. And how did you actually meet Heather? Heather was a member of the Quilt Guild, and I had volunteered to be in charge of the Guild Retreat, and she volunteered to help me. And that was, oh, I don't even know what year that was, but I think they had only been in business maybe for three or four years and it was not long after we had sold our businesses in Alaska. And the two of us just really hit it off. I think, um, you know, being a business owner, I could really appreciate what they were doing and, you know, how things were going for them. And I was so interested in all of that. And as a business owner, it's really wonderful to have somebody else who you can talk to about things like that, who understands and, you know, appreciates the things that you're facing. So, um, that kind of was where our friendship began was through the quilt guild. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that really does speak to the power of relationships and also the power of in-person connections. Cause it sounds as though for you going to the trade shows and demonstrating in the superior threads booth got you out there and got the connections that you needed. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think those are two really good things to pull from your story that people can carry forward because, you know, now, um, a lot has changed, you know, um, it's so crowded and there's, I mean, back in 2001, I'm imagining you might've been one of the only people to have quilting patterns or bag patterns available online. Whereas that is definitely not actually, the case now, or maybe there was others. No, you know, actually I have always been astounded when I have gone to shows at the amazing variety, especially of quilting patterns and I, I have remember always saying, thank you so much for buying my pattern with all the ones you have to choose from that you picked mine. Wow. You know, I just being totally amazed. But the thing that I did notice is that there weren't a lot of patterns for purses and bags and organizational things. 
And, and that kind of then became my focus, not so much, um, because there weren't other ones out there, but it was something that I liked. I liked being able to make a project that I could make in a weekend instead of, you know, months and months and months. I am not a very fast quilter. And especially when I was hand quilting, when my daughter graduated from high school, I wanted to make a special quilt for her. I kept track of the time. It was a twin size quilt and it took me 400 hours to make. And so the thing that I realized with smaller projects is that I kind of got instant gratification. And now, you know, there are tons and tons of other purse designers out there and a whole lot more variety to pick from. But, um, yeah, that definitely wasn't that way when I got started in in terms of writing patterns for purses and bags. Right. And so how do you think about, like, your positioning in the marketplace now? And and we'll go back and talk a little bit about some of the other things that you've done. But I just thinking, you know, jumping forward to today and looking at how many there are out there um, and how crowded it is and, and where you fit. I mean, how do you kind of think about all of those changes and what is your attitude toward them? You know... The thing that I've that I really try to focus on is just doing the best job that I can do, making my patterns the best. I work really hard to um, make sure that my patterns are really thorough and complete, and I try to make sure that when they're when they're making something, it looks really professional when they're done. I want it to be a purse that looks like someone bought it, not like they made it. So the techniques that I've developed. Um, kind of give that Cadillac finish, I think, when they're done. I try not to focus on what, you know, what else is out there, how much competition there is, because I have enough ideas. I could write patterns till I was 120 and still, you know, not run out of ideas. And I'm really fortunate because a lot of my customers will send me ideas and pictures or, I mean, I've received more than one old ragged purse in the mail from someone who says, this is my very favorite purse in the world. Can you make a pattern for it? Because I want another one. But, uh, you know, I just keep in your eye kind of on where you are and not getting too hung up with what else is out there, I I think has been my key in in, in going forward. Um, trying to to move forward in ways, you know, that that make my patterns better. For instance, I just in the past several months have uh, begun working with Lindsay, who I understand you you're good friends yes, with as well. With Lindsay Bergevin, who is the a yeah. graphic designer who I work with too. Yep. Yeah, she is so phenomenal, and it's uh, that that was one of my weaknesses. You know, I learned to do um, publisher and to put things in a desktop publish thing, thing, and I was pretty good so long as it was a square or a rectangle at drawing the lines and getting those in. But anything, anytime something became three-dimensional, I was lost. There was no way I could draw pictures for it. And so, you know, I, my patterns kind of suffered, I think, in that, in terms of that not having as many pictures as I needed. So it's been wonderful working with Lindsay and being able to kind of take my patterns to the next level and, um, you know, have some really good quality drawings and, and formatting. The, <laughs> the interesting things is, you know, I tried to keep patterns at four pages, six pages max. And now that we've got these pictures and all this layout, my last pattern was a 12 page long <sighs> pattern. So, yeah, I'm, I'm learning to change in many ways in, in terms of that as well. So um, let's talk about product development now. The way that I first came to know of you was through Soft and Stable. And this is a signature product that you've created that has become something everybody uses who makes bags, I feel like, and it's carried in, it's got to be hundreds of stores, if not thousands of stores. Um, and it, it's a kind of an amazing thing. And I, I want to hear how this came to be. So let's just start. Was Soft and Stable the first product that you developed, the first signature product? Yes, it was. I, I had worked with Superior Threads in the development of Texture Magic and had seen, you know, the great success that that we had with that and the great excitement that people had. And at the time I was working with patterns for purses and bags and I had a really unique way actually of installing zippers. And I was at a show and I watched another um, vendor um, introduce a line of zippers and she had an amazing way of demonstrating them and it was people were so thrilled and excited and at the time I was talking about 
you know, what I used in purses and bags to make them stand up and hold their shape. And, um, and I watched her do this and I thought, I have got to get going on this. So kind of the background of Soft and Stable is I had an old Vera Bradley bag and I absolutely loved that purse. And when it wore out, I thought, I can make one of these, but I want to know, you know, how they made this so it stands up and holds its shape because I had tried making purses with batting and they were floppy. They would always fall over and I'd try to put stuff in them and I'd have to lift the bag up and prop it open to try and get stuff in. So when that bag wore out, I could see that they had used foam in it. And I thought that must be the secret to this. And so I went to the local stores and looked for foam and I couldn't find anything. I found, you know, thick foam like you'd use for a chair pad or something. And even the thinner ones that I found were too thick and you couldn't sew through them because as soon as the foam would hit your feed dogs, it would stop moving and, and you just, it wouldn't work. Plus you got a really puffy look. And then I found foam pieces that, that are made to, for instance, go on a sun visor type thing that you can do. And that was too stiff and hard. And I found, um, you know, things like Temtex or whatever that were, that gave good body and stability, but they were stiff and hard. And if you tried to turn your project inside out, you had a lot of creases and it was just really hard to work with. So I kept looking and looking. And finally, I found something called headliner foam, which is, was developed to use in the headliners of cars. And it was a really soft, thin foam, and it had a trico fabric lining on one side. And I tried that in a purse and I loved how it worked. It, it gave it some body. It gave it some stability. It stood up and I was really thrilled. Where did you, sorry to interrupt, but where did you go that you found headliner foam? Were you at an auto body parts store? No, actually I was at a, at a, um, discount fabric store and they had it there. I assume for people who were working on cars and, and things, I, you know, I don't know that anybody had ever thought to use it in a purse or bag. So as I was going to shows with Superior, people would ask me, you know, what's in that bag? How did you do that? So I'd tell them about this and I'd call for it on my patterns. And all of a sudden I got started getting calls from customers wanting it. So, you know, I'd go buy a roll and I'd sell it on my website. But I also got stores calls from stores who were, you know, wondering where they could get it. And they were really annoyed because it wasn't something that I could buy at a price I could sell it to distributors for. And so I thought, you know, I really need to find somebody to make this for me so that I can buy it at a price that I can sell it to distributors who can then sell it to stores. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to fix all the things that I don't like because headliner foam was really soft and stretchy. And when you went to quilt a piece, for instance, if you had a fairly large piece, like you wanted to make one of my laptop bags or something, you had to be really, really, really careful to keep it straight and even. And invariably I would end up with a boat when I was done because it just stretched as I went. And it only had fabric on one side of the foam. And so I'd always put the fabric side on the bottom so that it would, because it would kind of hug my fabric and keep it from moving. And then I'd put my regular fabric on top on the foamy side so that I could control it. But it was really hard to keep things in place and keep things from moving and wiggling and, and also when I was done, I found that the, that the products didn't, they had a lot of give to them. And so they didn't have kind of the same stability. So anyway, I started looking and I contacted manufacturers all over the U S and I spent almost a year in development going back and forth with different manufacturers. And, and the thing that I really learned was the importance of a quick response and I mean, there were a lot of places who either would never answer my questions or would take two or three weeks. And finally, I found one company who was just absolutely excellent. If I had a question, they answered me immediately. I mean, within a day or two, I had an answer. And I didn't always like the answers that I got, but they were really good at giving me lots of great information and teaching me about the product. And so the things that I told them is, first of all, I want a better quality foam. I want something that's not going to stretch. I want something that's going to stand up and hold its shape. It's going to be long lasting. And I want to have fabric on both sides of it. And the gentleman that is still the person that I work with very closely there, 
I'm sure just kind of scratched his head and said, you know, who's this little lady and, and, you know, what is she coming up with? But, but bless his heart, you know, he really was willing to work with me and help me in any way he could. And so he said, you know, he'd send me samples and we'd go back and forth. And finally we decided on what it was going to be. And he said, you know, you're going to have to order a thousand yards of this. And I kind of gulped because, you know, that was kind of a lot of, yeah, lot of stuff. that's a table. lot. <laughs> you know, I was going to make a lot of purses for yes. my sisters and cousins. And, you know? and fill up your whole garage, yes. And fill up my whole garage. And But I looked at, you know, I had good accounting records. I looked at my records and I see, saw that I'd sold a thousand yards of headliner foam the year before. And I thought, I can do this. And so I, I said, that's fine. And so send it to me. Well, it came and... Uh, I mean, I I was working out of my garage. I was me. I'd had no employees. I, you know, had, I don't know how many patterns. I probably had 30 patterns at that point. And, um, you know, that's all I had. I didn't have other stuff besides it. And so I, um, I had it delivered to the Superior Threads dock, which is about five miles from me. And it came in in August, which in St. George, Utah is like 120 degrees. And my husband was on our ranch in Montana or Oregon somewhere. He wasn't here. So I took a little pickup over there. You know, it came in. They just dropped it off on the dock. Everybody was gone. It took me like five hours to get it all home because I could only get, it comes 50 yards on a roll. I could only get four rolls in the truck at a time. And those rolls weigh about 50 pounds. So I got it all in the garage. I got it all unloaded. And it, I mean, it took the whole garage. My car had to sit out in the (laughs) driveway and I hired my hairdresser's son to come over and help me carry one roll at a time up the stairs. We used my cutting table to roll the rolls out and we started cutting and packaging, you know, half yard and one yard pieces because I had market coming up and I was going to introduce this product at market. And I remember calling my husband that night and saying, oh my gosh, I have made the biggest mistake. Yeah. This is just overwhelming, partly Mm -hmm. just the work-wise, but largely because of the space commitment that I had. And bless his heart, he just said, relax, I'll be home in a couple weeks, you know, we'll go rent a storage unit where we can put this stuff, I'll make you some tables, we'll get people to cut it, you know, I'll help you, and, you know, and that thousand yards was gone in a month. Wow, and, Annie, and, that's amazing, that's yeah, amazing. so it really took off really well, I took it to market, um, I again was working with Superior Threads. My stock that I took was gone the first day of market, which was everything I had for market. We brought in half of what I had taken for festival and sold it because I thought I've got to get it in the hands of stores. Right. Um, Superior was really wonderful and gave me the last day of both market and festival off. And I walked to the entire convention center, any booth that had a purse or a placemat or anything that looked like they might be interested in this. i Show, gave them a card with a piece of salt and stable. I gave lots of packages away and it just took off. And now, you know, we bring in 55 truck foot truckloads of soft and stable on a regular basis. So yeah, it's just, it's amazing. It was really gratifying to me this year at schoolhouse. I, um, I always like to add, you know, I kind of like to know the people in the room, you know, what their interests are before I start talking so that I know, you know, what I should spend the time telling them about. And so one of my early questions is always, how many of you have used soft and stable? And so this year, my question became, has anyone not used soft and stable? And for the first time ever, not a single hand went up. So it was like, wow, you know, I've, I've, we've finally made it that, that, you know, everybody has heard of it and used it. So that was really exciting. How many years were in between that were in between that overwhelming, um, load in the garage, in the heat to every single person in the schoolhouse has used it? I think that soft and stable has been out for six years. It's either five or six. So it, it happened pretty quickly. It did. And it is quick. But at the same time, it's not an overnight. You know what I mean? So it is quick, obviously, in the, in the sort of long scope of business. That's a really fast success. And it is a remarkable success. But I think, though, there were years leading up to that and knowing your customer and finding this unique product that didn't exist in the marketplace, proving the concept 
by buying the you know the automotive version of it and selling a thousand yards yourself the year prior, so you knew there was a market, um, and then going through a year's worth of development to develop your own. Um, and then these, you know, these five or six years that have elapsed since it has been on the retail market to the point where it's now completely saturated, you know. So, so although it is fast, it's also many, many years of hard work. Many, many hours. And that's the one thing that I have learned, you know, I mean, throughout my whole business career is that you have to show up and you have to be willing to just work really long, long, long hours. I mean, as a business owner, you know, I probably, I probably get six hours of sleep and the rest of the time I am focused on, on business. It's, um, you know, it is just a lot of, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's getting out and doing shows, um, teaching classes, um, telling people about it. I think one of the really effective things for us was that I had one purse made with soft and stable and one made with batting. And so, you know, learning those types of techniques where you could show somebody a purse made with soft and stable, but they're not going to get it the same way without seeing one that's made differently. And then they go, Oh yeah, I get it. And the hands come out and say, yeah, give me one of those. I need that. And, and then, you know, working with various designers, trying to get it in their hands so that they use it in their patterns as well. And then, you know, they take it totally different directions and different ways than, than I even think of, which is the magic of, of networking and having other people involved in, in your product. And was there a particular turning point when, you know, maybe a particular designer used it or it was in a publication or just something happened where you felt like, oh my gosh, this is big. Like right after that, everything sort of changed. Can you identify a turning point like that? You know, I really can't. I think I think the biggest thing was just the introduction of it. Everybody saw it and was excited about it. And then each show that I did thereafter and each thing that came out, I can't say that there was any one event or one thing that just all of a sudden popped it open. I think it's been much more of a, a gradual increase and just kind of that flooding, you know, of, of the little drip of water that all of a sudden, you know, the sink is full and it's, and it's, and it's going over. Um, yeah, I can't really think of anything yeah. like that. I think that, um, I think that that, that in itself is really interesting because the way that I always think about my business is that it's like a slow build. Every day there's a new relationship. There's a, a small tweak you can make that's going to, you know, improve things. There's something new you learned or a goal, new goal you set. And every day, you know, you make those very, very tiny improvements and you're building. I almost think about it like little sugar cubes are just like building them up one by one. And over the long term, if you're able to persevere and stay with it, you in the end have a huge building, you know, but it, it is a long, yes. slow build. Yes. Yes. I think that's it. It's, um, and, and all of a sudden you look back and it's like, whoa, wow, look how far we've come. I mean, three years ago I was working in my garage with, um, two part-time employees and, um, you know, now I have a 2,500 square foot warehouse with about 15 people working for me. We've, we're getting ready, hopefully, in the next month or so to move into a 7,000-square-foot facility, which can't come soon enough. I am so ready to have some more space. And, uh, you know, that – so I probably, for me, the biggest thing that has changed my business is my son coming to work with me because I was focused on, you know, developing soft and stable writing patterns – and, you know, filling orders and, you know, keeping the books up to date and thinking I had to do everything myself. And when he came to work and kind of set me free to not have to focus on those, I will have to admit that it was really, really, really hard for me to do that because I was used to having my finger in every single pie and being in charge of everything and turning those things loose and letting somebody else take them was a real struggle for me, but, you know, he really, 
he really worked on it. And now that I've given up so many of those things, I don't know how I'd ever go back and do them again, because there's just not enough hours in the day. Yeah, I imagine. And I think it's so admirable, too, to be able to build a business that can be passed on to the next generation. I mean, that's something that I think about, you know, from time to time, like, are you building a business that you could either one day sell, you know, sell the business or, or pass on to a child or another relative or, or something like that in your family? Um, you know, or is the business so, um, sort of based around you and your personality that when you no longer can or, or want to do it, then there is no business. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think, you know, had I stuck strictly with patterns, that's probably where it would have been because, you know, it would have not been something that someone else could pick up. You know, I still sell patterns that were my original patterns that I wrote 10, 15 years ago. So they do have a life, but not the same life as new patterns that come out. But having, you know, all the other components of this, the soft and stable, the zippers, the mesh, the hardware, definitely has turned it into a business that I think someone else would uh, would be willing to come in and, and, and buy or, you know, that my kids can take over. Uh, my daughter-in-law had never sewn before she married my son, and my husband died very unexpectedly a month after they got married. And so I spent that Christmas with them. He died, you know, right before Thanksgiving in 2013. And I spent that Christmas with them and one of the things that she and I did, because she had just moved here from Spain, she didn't speak English really well. My son had a full-time job. He was chief of staff to the president of a university in California. So he was gone all day. And she really needed something to um, to give her, you know, something to do during the day while he was gone. So I taught her to sew my pattern for some little ditty bags. And I gave her my little Janome sewing machine. And goodness, that girl took off. Within about a month, she was sending me pictures of bags that she'd made using that general concept, but she'd added straps and handles and, you know, things to them. And this year for market, she sewed probably half of the samples that I had in the booth. So, you know, I, it's fun for me to look, she and Casey and Gloria have um, opened a distribution center for Biani.com in uh, near Madrid in Spain. And, and so, you know, their goal is that they'd love to be able to live part of the year there and part of the year here. But it's exciting for me to see her learning all these skills and techniques that hopefully, you know, she'll go to to Spain and and start doing some classes and things there. But but we'll be able to keep the business going and getting their youthful ideas and, you know, enthusiasm and input on things has been really invaluable to the growth of our business. And let's talk a little bit about Craftsy. Um, you've got some classes on Craftsy, and I um, I was watching the the little preview videos that Craftsy gives you um, uh, before we before we recorded this podcast, and they they really look wonderful. And I wonder, I mean, I'm sure when you first started, you could never have anticipated that something like this would be part of what you would do. Although maybe teaching, but teaching online in this in this really beautiful way. Um, so, what was that experience like for you? You know, it was really funny. I had met uh, Sue Hausman actually at an open house that Checker did one year where I was demonstrating and she was talking about Craftsy. And she said, you know, I can't give you numbers, but I have friends who say it was the best decision, business decision they ever made to go teach a class there. And, and, you know, I'd kind of thought about it, but I really did not picture myself teaching a class online. Um, But I thought, you know, why not? I should look into it. Well, I was at a show in Puyallup, Washington, And um, one of the acquisition editors for Craftsy came through the booth and she was looking around and she said, you know, we've got surveys saying that people really want small projects and they want things that will organize things. And your patterns look like they would be really perfect. And I said, well, it's really great that you're here because I've been thinking about sending something to you, you know, as a proposal, but I had no idea how to go about it and what to send. So will you just take a look around and see what you think would 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 work. And within a month, I was on camera (laughs) signing contracts. I wasn't on camera. I was signing contracts. And probably within about three months, I was on camera. And that was early in the days of Craftsy in terms of where they are now. And and they didn't have nearly the same support for somebody going forward as they do now. It's been really fun for me to see 
the transitions in their business uh, from my first class to my fourth class. So my first class featured two projects. It ended up being six hours long, which was a lot of work to get ready for. But the thing that I realized really early on is I've got to have lots of step outs. So I made like four sets of every bag so that we could do it. And and it was just an amazing experience it, to, to see how my business grew from the exposure that I got and to see the number of people that I could reach. You know, I like to travel and teach, but when I teach, you know, anywhere, the most people I'm probably ever going to have in a classroom is 30 people. And, you know, you travel two days to get there and back. You're there teaching. You, you may reach 50 people in a, in a week. In my Craftsy class, by now I have four classes, but I've got 30,000 people in those classes. So the number of people that I'm able to, uh, you know, impact with learning these techniques, learning about the best materials to use, the right kinds of tools, and easy ways to put in zippers, easy ways to do things, has just been you know, phenomenal to me to and see the reach of that. I know that you are somebody who really values the local quilt shop and is, um, you know, really wants to work with local quilt shops. Do you worry at all about sort of um, reaching all of those people online and that in some way then they're not going to come to their local quilt shop or do you find it to be the opposite? You know, I, I actually, that was one of my concerns when I started and I wasn't sure how it was going to work out. I, you know, I'm really careful that I, you know, tell people, check your local quilt shop for these items. And to me, as, as you know, when I'm ready to start a project, if I can run to my store and know they're going to have everything that I need, I'm going to do that first because it's so much easier to go get it and come home and start sewing that day than it is to have to go online, order it, wait for it to arrive, hope it, you know, I picked the right color of zippers. I couldn't match them next to my fabric. You know, so so I definitely do that. The one concern I had was for teaching because I still had a lot of stores who wanted, you know, my classes. And invariably, when someone would contact me, the classes that they wanted were the classes that were the subjects of my craftsy classes. And it it made me a little nervous because I thought, you know, if somebody can go online and take this class, are they going to pay the money to go to a quilt shop and take it? And I was amazingly surprised to see that the classes that filled up were the same classes that were the craftsy classes. And when I got to class, I would hear from a vast majority of the people in the class that they already had the craftsy class. And they turned out to be the most relaxed classes I ever teach because everyone knew that they could go home and watch it if they missed it in class or if they didn't get it done. But what was important to them was to set aside the time to come, to be with their friends, you know, to be there and get, you know, hands-on help. It, it wasn't hurting the classes um, by having that as an option. So, you know, I think that, that my worries about that were really unfounded. I think that if you can expose people to this, and, and you've got a store that you're going to have these options, I think you're going to still be really successful and you're providing something that Craftsy can't. And that's a sense of community. Absolutely. And I know that if I took a class on Craftsy with a designer that I really like, and then I saw that she was going to be in my local area, I would be more apt to go out and see her um, because I'd seen her on Craftsy and felt like, oh my gosh, I already know her. I already know that, you know, what she's like. I already know I like what she makes and I like her style. And to be actually in the same room and to get one-on-one -on -one help, you know, from her and get the chance to, to interact in a casual way would be even more special. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's the way it turned out. So that was that was good for me to see. Yeah. No, I think that's important for, for people to hear just generally, both designers and quilt shop owners. So um, so I know you're a grandmother now um, and you have a, a grandson. Yes, I do. My grandson is Liam and he's 19 months old. He is just the, the light of my life. I when uh, when he was born, he uh, well, he was born in Spain, so I didn't get to meet him until he was about six weeks old. But from six weeks old until maybe early January of this year, he came to work every day. 
So I got to see him every single day. The day that he climbed to the stop top of the rolling staircase in the warehouse and mom turned around and saw him up there headed down when he was like a year old and barely able to walk was the day that mom and dad decided that was probably not the best place for him to be. And he he started going to school. So I don't get to see him nearly as much as I did before, but um, but he's still close by. They just bought a house, which is less than five minutes away, and I added a car seat to my van so that I can run over and pick him up and bring him over to see Nana anytime, and so I'm really looking forward to that in the coming months. Oh, that's a blessing. That's wonderful. Congratulations to you, and um, and I, I, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations in just a moment, but is there anything exciting that you want to talk about that's going to be coming out soon or new things on the horizon with Biannis? Let's see. I, I make it a goal to have six new patterns for every market. I did accomplish that in at fall market this year. So I've got some really fun new patterns. You will see that a lot of them are influenced by my grandson. So I've got a changing station that opens out to a changing pad. My daughter-in-law is really um, anxious to get me to make one for her because she says, Liam's at the stage now where I don't have to take the diaper bag with me. All I need is a diaper and you know some wet wipes so I don't have to carry all that weight. I also did a pattern for a diaper bag that had been much requested. Uh, a organizer to hang in the car so you can keep kids entertained while you drive. It's got a pocket that you can put the iPad in and lots of pockets for all their toys and things. Another organizer for the car. So so those are all new things that we came out with. A lot, All of my new patterns feature our new lightweight mesh, which is available in seven colors. We're hoping to add a few more colors to that. So those may be available by spring market. Um, Truthfully, we have come out with so many new things over the past couple years that I think right now we've got a new website coming out hopefully okay. in January, Yay. which is going to be a big, you know, big change where we've been kind of limited by our website up to now. We've had variations, but we've only had one variation. So if somebody wants to order a finishing kit, um, we have to put it on as antique brass or nickel or black and then they can pick the color of zippers, but that doesn't give them a, the ability to pick what color of mesh they want. And so, you know, we're trying with our new website for people to be able on one screen to pick all the different options and, and you know, not have to look so hard to find the things that they need. So that's gonna be a real big focus for us. And then our move into our new location is going to be a huge, um, job. So I'm thinking that new new patterns, my goal is to have one written every month so that when May comes and spring market is ready, I'm ready and I'm already behind by one month. But, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. But yeah, if I could put in a Christmas wish for a thousand hours in every day, that that would be my Christmas request. My gosh, I think I'm right there with you on that one. Um, okay, so let's get to your recommendations. Um, and I know you have a, a few fun things to recommend. One of them is um, some succulents. And I actually am a really big fan of succulents too, because otherwise with regular kinds of plants, I tend to over water. And the thing with succulents is I just decide to ignore them. And then they're absolutely. Happy. <laughs> yes. Yes, I absolutely love succulents. And I'm really excited because just this week in the mail, um, one of the gals who is a technical editor for my patterns, Leslie Meltzer, a lot of people know her as Lily Bunny on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, she made me this awesome table runner with pieced succulents on it. And she used Heather Givens. Um, succulent line of fabrics from Wyndham Fabrics. So oh, yeah. I, I'm hoping to get a picture taken of that today with some of my succulents on it. All my succulents had to come in the house because we're getting um, temperatures below freezing now. So I've got them on every corner, but it really is nice to know that I don't have to really worry about watering them more than about once every month or two. Yeah, no, absolutely. I have them in my kitchen and I, I love them for that reason. Um, and then you wanted, you talked a little bit about your mesh, which was one of the things that you um, wanted to recommend. And then some ribbons from Renaissance Ribbons, which I love as well. Absolutely. Yes, I love um, their ribbons. I made a bunch of eye cases this summer for not not eye cases, we made our zip it up cases for the sales reps at Checker, 
because we wanted to give them something that when they went out to visit um, stores, they could show that used our soft and stable and our mesh and our vinyl. And we had we had gotten some um, basic black and white fabrics, which I wasn't really wild about when I got them. They were kind of grayed down and, and they just weren't exactly what I had in mind. But I wanted something that I was going to be able to use all seven colors of mesh and all the different zippers on. And so I thought, well, how am I going to make this work? You know, how's this going to tie in with that black and white? And I remembered that Renaissance Ribbons had sent me a whole selection of all their ribbons. And I started pulling those out and they saved the day because I was able to use just a little strip of ribbon on the front of the pocket, which tied in the black and white with the colors of mesh and the colors of zippers. And they just turned out beautifully. So I, I enjoy working with them. And, and we're actually going to get together in December. She's got a new line of ribbons that are printed on velvet. And we're going to work to design a bag pattern for using those. So that's something fun that's going to be coming soon. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds gorgeous. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, um, Annie, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshing Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you and I feel like I learned so much. Thank you too, Abby. I really, really enjoyed visiting with you today and, and I appreciated your questions. You really made me stop and think about where I've been and where I'm going. Thanks oh, so much. Super. And you've been listening to the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshingapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you to our sponsor, Modern Patchwork Magazine. Readers of Modern Patchwork Magazine have asked, and the publisher is delivering. The industry's favorite modern quilting publication is now available six times a year on the newsstand, as well as by subscription. Check out Modern Patchwork's new look early in 2017. It's the magazine you love with full-size templates, in-depth designer profiles, inspirational articles, all delivered to your doorstep. To order your subscription, please visit quiltingdaily.com slash MP subscribe or call 1-800-282-6003. Thank you so much, Modern Patchwork. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time.